for the men. Guys, if this is the first you're hearing of the fact that it's Mother's Day, it's okay, just play it cool. Get on your phone during the message. I'll think you're looking at the text, but make a lunch reservation and then try to pretend like that was the plan. So, hey, I know that Mother's Day can be a tough day. Um, there's so many mixed emotions that come with a day like this. There's, you know, joy and happiness for some, but maybe even some sorrow and some regret for others. Um, we here, our heart is just to acknowledge all of you as women who pour into our lives and do so much, whether you're a physical mother or a spiritual mother, um, we're thankful for you and we want to honor you and we want you to know that the Lord honors you. So with that said, big hand for the moms for sure. <clears throat> so for the moms, kids, you are dismissed. You can go with teacher Anne over there. And youth, you guys are out of here as well. Pastor Chris is taking you out. Because it's Mother's Day, we have a special Mother's Day message this morning. So you can turn to Joshua chapter 15. Okay, my wife got that at least. We're going to continue on right through our study through the book of Joshua. And as you know, oh, if you need a Bible, you, you raise your hand and we've got them for you. Uh, you might want one this morning because we've got a lot of ground to cover. So a couple of Bibles here. Just keep your hands up and the guys will uh, run to the store and buy a Bible and bring it to you. No, I'm kidding. We have them here. So just keep your hand up and we'll get you one. If you've been with us as we've been studying through this book for the last 14 weeks, we have now entered a brand new section of the book of Joshua. It's this very exciting phase in the story of Joshua as we're now watching the children of Israel, they've really, they've conquered, you know, the, they've, they've conquered the promised land, and now we are looking at the distribution of the promised land, given out to the inheritance to all these different tribes. Um, and we've seen that this is the section of the book where the tribes are gonna start now to settle into this territory that they've been given, and to really fully finish that work of driving out those pagan peoples who were currently inhabiting the land. We've seen in those first phases of the conquest, we said that the backbone, if you will, of the Canaanite power over the land had been broken, and yet as the Lord said to Joshua, there is still very much land to be possessed. And so now we see that God, by God's divine design, it would be each tribe separately who was now responsible to work individually in that section of the land that had been given to them specifically. And this is a section of the book which we've said, it kind of in some parts, it reads a little bit like a grant deed, right? Or some kind of a real estate document. And it has these very exciting descriptions, right? Of geography and of boundaries and yet I, I hope that you'll agree that we've started to see as we've gone through this that kind of tucked away in the midst of all of these things right all of the the valleys and the ridges and the mountain ranges and the rivers and the you know the seas and the cities all of those hard to pronounce names of peoples and places but tucked in the midst away of all of that is this beautiful narrative Right? Just as the continuing story of God's people and of their faith 
and of his work both in them and of his work on their behalf, his work through them, and that these little narrative kind of nuggets really provide for us some very, very, I think, important insight to the heart of the Lord for his children and the ways not only that he worked in them, but of course the ways that he continued to work in us. And we saw such a great, I think, an example of that. Just in our text last week, remember the story of our friend Caleb. And it was this story we said of wholehearted faithfulness. And we saw him kind of step up. He stepped right in there to the middle of that great assembly there as the tribes had gathered together at Gilgal, right, to begin this distribution of the land to those nine and a half tribes who had come across the Jordan River into the promised land proper. And we saw that here in the middle of that, 85-year-old Caleb comes in really to kind of cash in on this promise that had been made to him by the Lord 45 years earlier. And we saw in response to that promise that he's given, just as the Lord said he would, this special section of land. It was this giant-filled section of land, right, surrounding that heritage-filled city of Hebron, right there in the Judean hill country. And so now this morning, kind of with that piece of unfinished business now finally finished, now we're gonna see the proceedings continue. And we're gonna see as a Mother's Day treat, right, it's the inheritance now that's given to the tribe of Judah. Let's pray and just let's ask the Lord to really bless uh, our time together. So Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity to gather, and we do thank you, Lord, for the moms, Lord, again, the, the physical moms, the spiritual moms, all of those women who pour into us uh, each and every day, Lord. We thank you for them, and we thank you for the blessing that they are for each of us. Lord, we pray even now as we're gathered together celebrating them, Lord, we pray as well now as we go to your word that you would bless this time, Lord, that you would be our teacher this morning, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to the church, Lord, and we thank you. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So Joshua 15, I know if you tried to read ahead, which I know so many of you probably are reading ahead every week, if you did that, you know that this chapter is 63 verses long. And that easily 50 of those verses are property lines and very challenging names. And I just want to put your, your minds at ease right now. We are not going to labor over each and every verse. But I, I hope that we will see that in the midst of all of these verses, there are some things that I believe that the Lord definitely has for us and some things that he really wants to reveal to us. And we see that starting right off. These first 12 verses are a general description of all of the boundaries of this entire allotment of land given to Judah. It starts off in verse 1 of Joshua 15. It says that this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah according to their families. Now remember, the, the tribe of Judah was the largest tribe, and here now it's the first tribe to receive her inheritance. Now this is kind of unusual 
because Judah was not the firstborn of the sons. And yet what we see is that instead of following after kind of a strict chronological birth order in terms of the birthright, the distribution of the land instead follows more directly after the blessing that Jacob gave to all of his sons just before his death in Genesis chapter 49. And it's in that blessing that we learn that because of his sin of incest 40 years before with Jacob's concubine wife, Bilna, the firstborn son, Reuben, lost his birthright. And so here we see that that birthright is then passed on first to Judah, and then we're going to see next week to Joseph. And what we're going to see is not only does the order, uh, you know, the, 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 the order of the land given, but also the borders of the land given to Judah perfectly parallel this prophecy that was given by Jacob. Again, the rest of verse 1, it says, this was the lot of the tribe. It says, the border of Edom at the wilderness of Zin southward was the extreme southern boundary. And their southern border began at the shore of the Salt Sea from the bay that faces southward. Then it went out to the southern side of the ascent of Akrabin, passed along Zin, ascended to the south side of Kadesh Barnea, passed along to Hezron, went up to Adar, and went around to Karka. From there it passed toward Ammon and went toward the brook of Egypt, and the border ended at the sea, and this shall be your southern border." The east border, a little bit simpler, was the Salt Sea as far as the mouth of the Jordan. The border on the northern quarter began at the bay of the Sea of the Mouth of Jordan. The border went up to Beth Hogla and passed north of Beth Arba, and the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. Then the border went up toward Debir from the valley of Achor, that should sound familiar, and it turned northward toward Gilgal, which is before the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley, and the border continued toward the waters of En Shemesh and ended at Anrogel. I know you said, I thought he wasn't going to read all this. I'm not going to read the second half of the chapter. But any, the border went up to the valley of the son of Hinnom to the southern slope of the Jebulite, Jebusite city, which is Jerusalem. The border went up to the top of the mountain that lies before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of Rephim northward. Then the border went around from the top of the hill to the fountain of the water of Neptoah and extended to the cities of Mount Ephraim. And the border went around to Bala, which is Kirjath Jerim. Then the border turned westward from Bala to Mount Seir, passed along the side of Mount Jerim on the north, which is Chesalon, went down to Beth Shemesh and passed on to Timnah. And the border went out to the east side of Ekron northward, then the border went around Shikron, passed along to Mount Bala and extended to Jabneel, and the border ended at the sea. And the west border was the coastline of the Great Sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea. This is the boundary of the children of Judah, all around according to their families. So we see in all of these verses, and probably better there on the map, that the tribe of Judah occupied this huge area in the south of the land, right? It's mainly all of that territory conquered by Joshua in the southern campaign, you remember from back in chapter 10. It was virtually all of that 
territory. And we're going to see that that's going to be significant. Because later on, by the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 12, when Israel is divided, it ends up splitting in two just after the reign of King Solomon. You remember the story when the northern ten tribes kind of aligned themselves with a man by the name of Jeroboam. And they rebel against Solomon's son, his heir, the new king Rehoboam, because he's a young punk, right? In the arrogance of his youth, he's oppressing the people, he's overtaxing the tribes. At any rate, the country divides up into the northern section of Israel, and they keep that name of Israel, and it's all of those northern ten tribes. And then you have just the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and so that land becomes, or the nation, I should say, of Judah. And of course, as we look at these boundaries, what we see, once again, is that history confirms prophecy. And specifically, that Jacob's prophecy regarding his son Judah and his seed was remarkably fulfilled in the land that was given to her according to the lot of the Lord. Because just as Jacob had promised in Genesis 49, 8 and 9, the, the uh, tribe of Judah was completely surrounded by her enemies. You've got the Moabites on the east and the Edomites in the south and the Amalekites to the southwest. You've got the Philistines running all there along the west. And so Judah is hemmed in here by these fierce forces on all sides. And it would take a great nation with these great coming kings like King David in order for the tribe of Judah to survive. Now, Jacob had also prophesied in Genesis 49 that the land that was given to Judah would be a land that would produce much fruit, and in particular, vineyards. And of course, we know that from back in Numbers chapter 13, that it was from this same area here in the Judean Valley of Eshel that the spies had cut down that gigantic cluster of grapes when they went to spy out the land. Most importantly, of course, according to Genesis 49, Jacob had also prophesied that Judah was the tribe from which the Messiah would come. Jacob, in 49.8, he declared, first of all, that Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. And the name Judah is the Hebrew word for praise. And of course, it's a, a beautiful name, right? If you're looking for a, a book of baby name, Judah's a beautiful name, but it's much more than just a name because it was in Judah's portion that we saw there in verse 8, that's where the city of Jerusalem was located. The city, of course, in which the temple eventually would end up. And that temple would become the central place of praise for all of the people of Israel and eventually all the people on the planet, as we saw in our study through Revelation. But here it's where the praise of the nation would take place, right there in the tribal allotment of Judah. And here's where it gets really interesting. Jacob continues in his prophecy in Genesis 49. Speaking of Judah, he says that your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So a couple predictions here in this prophecy. The first one is that Judah would be both a warrior tribe but also be a kingly tribe, right? A warrior tribe like a lion whose enemies fear him. And we've seen that they would be the first to march as they broke camp in the wilderness. They were the first to go out to war. But also, Jacob says, that this would be the kingly tribe, right? That the scepter wouldn't depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And the ancient rabbis, of course, recognized this as a messianic prophecy. Shiloh was another term for the coming Messiah. And this is, I think, where it gets super fascinating. This is just another little Mother's Day bonus, ladies. If we fast forward 14 years from this point, when the Romans would come and they would conquer Israel and they would settle and subjugate all of Judah and occupy the entire nation, and they took away the right of Israel and of Judah, of course, to fully govern themselves. Specifically, they took away the right for the nation to judge in capital cases, right? They took away the right for them to execute a person for a capital offense. And when that happened, according to Jewish history, the Jewish Sanhedrin, and that was the Jewish ruling body there in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, the members of the Sanhedrin put on sackcloth and ashes, right? Signs of great grief and great mourning. And they paraded through the streets of Jerusalem and they said that the scepter had departed from Judah, but that Shiloh had not come. So here they are mourning publicly the fact, so they thought, that God had broken his promise to Judah that the rule, that tribal right to rule, wouldn't depart from Judah until the Messiah had come. Uh, Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. So here in Jerusalem, they're parading and they're lamenting about God's broken promises when just north of there, growing up even then in Nazareth, was a young boy born from the tribe of Judah named Yeshua, named Joshua, named Jesus, who was even then preparing to lay down his carpenter's tools and to march prophetically right into Jerusalem within just a number of years. So in a sense, the scepter did depart from Judah, but Shiloh had come, amen? Shiloh had come and the lion of the tribe of Judah was even then preparing to march on the city of Jerusalem right there within that tribal allotment. And I just think it's amazing the kinds of encouragement for our faith that are hidden here amongst these geographical details. If you weren't encouraged, at least I was encouraged and I could use the encouragement. So now we're gonna continue on Right, we're gonna to come to one of those important little pauses, this narrative that's a little bit easier to see in these details. Now we're gonna get kind of this neat footnote to the story of our friend Caleb. 
and it's a very faith-filled footnote to Caleb's faith-filled life. Look at verse 13. It says, Now to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a share among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. So you remember, and we're just reminded here, that Caleb had been specifically given, notice here, he wasn't given by the lot of the Lord, but by the commandment of the Lord. He was given this special portion of land for himself within the land that was being given to Judah. Remember, Caleb himself was part of the tribe of Judah. Remember Caleb, this man of whom the scriptures makes that great statement over and over again, that he was a man who wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Remember we talked about the fact he was one of only two of those original 12 spies that had come back 45 years earlier from spying out the land, right? He gave a faith-filled report, and here he was re rewarded by the Lord. And remember again from our text last time that Caleb asked that he be given the very same section of land, right? That mountainy, hill country kind of land that he had set foot on 40 years before, that very same section of land with the very same giants still in the land, those Anakim, those very same giants that had struck fear into the hearts of the 10 faithless spies and then into the hearts of all of Israel. Here we see that it was renamed Hebron, but it was then called Kirjath Arba. It was named after the father of those Anakim giants who inhabited the area. Now, in the Bible, when you see the word Kirjath before a city name, it's speaking of a great city or a walled city, specifically a fortress kind of city. So Kirjath Arba is basically the fortress Arba. Right? So we remember from our text last time, remember what you know, Caleb says? He says, I want that city, and I want those same stinking giants that I've been waiting to get my hands on for 45 years. And we see that get them he did because it says in verse 14 that Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. Now, I was reminded by Eric last week that here in this verse, I think we see some very significant historical proof that in addition to simply being a great warrior, that Caleb may also have had a side hustle because I think he was the very first Uber driver. Really, notice it specifically says he went up against Kirjath Arba and he drove out the three sons of Anak from there. See, he drove them out of the city like an Uber. Is anybody with me today? Okay, that might not be exactly what the text means. But exactly what it does mean is that Caleb wasn't messing around. right? Caleb did exactly what he was supposed to do. He got rid of those giants in his territory, all the giants. And again, all, including the sons of the giants, right? Shishai 
and Ahiman and Talmai. Now I have to admit, Shishai sounds like kind of a silly name for a giant, but you don't argue with a guy, you don't make fun of his name when he's between eight feet and 10 feet tall. So Shishai, driven out of the city by Caleb the Uber driver. So he first takes on this main fortress city of Kirjath Arba. Then it says in verse 15 that he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debir. Formerly the name of Debir was Kirjath Sefer. So fortress Sefer. Now Caleb moves quickly. He heads right to the next enemy stronghold. But notice next he has a slightly different strategy for how he's gonna conquer this one. It says in verse 16 that Caleb said, he who attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. Now, this might seem like a strange way to choose your son-in-law, right, for your daughter. Now, and for your only daughter, I might add, but for those of us who are dads, I want you guys just to think, think this through for a minute and you will see the great wisdom in Caleb's approach. Because I can tell you one thing, and I will speak for every dad in the room, I'll even speak for some of the moms in the room. If I'm Caleb and I'm going to entrust my precious daughter, right, my only daughter, and I'm gonna entrust her to some young man, I want him to be a giant killer just like I am. I want a man who I know is filled with courage. I want a man who I know who has the same great faith in those same great and precious promises of God that I do. And so essentially what Caleb's doing here is he's kind of creating kind of a test. He's setting a standard, right, a high bar for any man who would even hope to have the hand of getting his daughter in marriage, right? This test would guarantee that whoever did this was a man of great faith and a man of great valor and a man who ultimately was worthy of his daughter. And it's really not that different than what we want of any man who has any hope of possibly marrying our little girl. Amen, dads? Amen, moms? Right? We want him to be a hard worker. We want him to be a man of faith. And most importantly, we want him to be a man who also believes the promises of God. And so Caleb makes this announcement to all of the men. And we read in verse 17, it says, So Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as a wife. Now, Othniel, we mentioned last week, happened to be the nephew of Caleb. He was the one who stepped up and defeated these giants, right, pushing them out of that fortress city. And as a result, he gained the hand of Aksa in marriage. We also mentioned of Othniel. We're going to meet him again if and when we ever get to the book of Judges because he's going to be the very first judge over all of Israel. We're going to read of him in Judges chapter 3 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and God used him to free Israel from this horrible oppression by the wicked Mesopotamian king Kushan Rishathang. Now, incidentally, Rishathang, by the way, means double wickedness. So, it's another one of those boy-baby names you probably want to cross off of 
your list. Now, understand, when you hear the word judge as it relates to the book of Judges, it's not the long black robe kind of a judge that we think of. The word judge actually means deliverer. So the book of Judges is sort of the book of deliverers. And it's the, the story of a series of 12 great deliverers who we see the Lord raise up and really work through to deliver Israel from this repeated cycle of being oppressed by their enemies. So in and of itself, it's this series of beautiful pictures of God's work on our behalf. And maybe should the Lord tarry, someday we'll get to study through that book. And get Othniel here, even before we see him in the pages of the book of Judges, right here in this conquest, in the taking of Kirjath Sefer, it in and of itself, I think, is a beautiful picture. Because the name Othniel means Lion of God. And so Othniel here, he comes forward to defeat an enemy so that he can take a bride. And so we have this beautiful picture of the Lion of God from the tribe of Judah coming forth to defeat the enemy of God's people so that he can take a bride for himself. And of course you all can see, you can understand how beautiful this picture is because it points us right to Jesus, doesn't it? It points us right to the true lion of the tribe of Judah who defeated our great enemy at the cross so that he could redeem us and that he could take us as his bride, right? the bride of Christ, the church. And so Othniel wins the hand of Caleb's daughter, Aksa, and it says in verse 18, now it was so when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment, here on Mother's Day, just to take a minute to recognize what wives do and how they work. Because no sooner had Aksa come to Othniel, which simply means that they were wed and, and all of the rest of it, the very next thing she does is she persuaded him. Now, this is a gift, isn't it, that wives have. It's not necessarily one of the spiritual gifts that Paul mentions specifically in the pages of the New Testament, and yet I can testify to you that it is no less of a practical reality, right, dads, husbands? We can call it the gift of persuasion that women have. I think the King James Version, it says that Aksa came to Othniel and she moved him. And I think that's an accurate picture of marriage. It's sometimes said that the man may be the head of the household, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head whichever way she pleases. And at this point, I'm just going to leave it right here. And you guys can all pray for me because I might be in really big trouble. Today may be the worst Mother's Day I've ever had. We'll, we'll have to find out. So Aksa moves Othniel to go to Caleb on her behalf and to ask for this special spot of land. So they go to Caleb together, rest of verse 18. And so she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you wish? And I love this because 
Caleb surely knew his daughter, and he surely knew that look. Right? She comes riding up, and the first thing he says is, what do you want? Right? She answered, verse 19, give me a blessing. Since you've given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So just from a purely practical perspective, this tells us that Aksa was just as sharp as her father Caleb. The apple didn't fall very far from the tree. Apparently, you know, a piece of land had been given to them by Caleb, probably as a wedding gift. No doubt it was a good piece of land. And yet Aksa gets down there and she looks around and she realizes right away that in kind of the dry aridness of that part of the world, she didn't have enough water supply to really make that land, you know, to feed that land so that it would be fruitful and flourish. And so she wants to go back and ask for some additional land, the land that has these springs of water. And she asks, and what do you know? She gets it. Right? James tells us that you have not because you ask not. And here, Aksa, think about it. She's been raised in a home by a father who has this great faith in God. She's watched Caleb, who's lived his whole life based on the promises of God and by asking great things of God and by expecting great things from God. And she says, well, why not? She says, this is something that I need and why wouldn't my father want to bless me with that thing? And of course, Caleb would and Caleb does. And he does it without any hesitation. And notice he gives her not only a spring, he gives her two springs. He gives her the upper springs and the lower springs. And once again, I, I hope you can see that there's this beautiful picture that we see here. We have the bride of the Lion of God asking for springs of living water. And then that water being poured out in abundance on her in return. And you know, that should be our very same request each and every day, shouldn't it? Lord, give me springs, right? Give me the upper springs and the lower springs. Pour out your living water and fill me afresh each day with your spirit, Jesus. You remember in John chapter seven, it was there in Jerusalem, it was during the feast of the tabernacles, and it says that Jesus stood up, it says in, in chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 37, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, he said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So here is the invitation for the bride to ask. And we know that Jesus had, Jesus had previously promised in Luke 11, he says, if you then being evil, or if you being a sinful individual, he says, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? So the bride asks and the father gives. 
And just like our Heavenly Father, Caleb is such a beautiful picture of a man who is so generous and he's so eager to bless his children with this wonderful inheritance and to give them everything they need and then some in order that they could grow and really flourish. This man, Caleb, that man of a different spirit, I think he's such a great encouragement to us all. And again, all of it right here in this precious little narrative nugget that's nestled here amongst this detailed description of the land of Judah. Now, in the balance of our chapter this morning, from verse 20 all the way to verse 62, Right? We've seen the boundaries of the land of Judah. Now we're going to have a very detailed listing, if you're looking at it, of all of the cities that Judah inherited as part of their portion of the land. So these are the cities of Judah. It says, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah, of Judah according to their families. Now, we are not going to read all the names in these lists just so you can watch me struggle up here to pronounce them and, and snicker and talk about it at lunch afterward. You can read through all of these cities on your own and I know most of you will go right home and do that probably this afternoon. Honey, what do you want to do for Mother's Day? Well, I wanted to read through that list. But I'll say this. There are some great blessings that can come from diving deep into these kinds of lists. If you're interested... In the numerical Bible by a, a, an English Bible scholar named F.W. Grant, there are 36 pages of teeny tiny print just on Joshua chapter 15. Because what Grant did is he traced every boundary and he tracked down the meaning of the names and the places and then he draws out these wonderful spiritual lessons about all of our spiritual blessings and spiritual battles, right? Second Timothy chapter three, Paul tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And he says it's profitable. And literally what that says is that all scripture is breathed out by God. Each and every word in the word of God is given to us directly by God. So yes, even the names of people, the names of places have this remarkable significance. And when you translate it and you really start to understand these pictures more fully, it really tells us something of the richness and the preciousness of this inheritance in these heavenly places in Christ Jesus that we have. But since it's Mother's Day, we're not going to dive deep today. We're going to kind of go like a little survey. It's my gift to you moms. In verses 21 to 32, we're going to see this incredibly comprehensive list just of the cities in the south. It's what you might have heard referred to as the Negev, right? It's that desert region down there in the south of Israel. It says in verse 21 that the cities at the limits of the tribe of the children of Judah toward the border of Edom in the south... And in verse 32, you can see it says, all the cities are 29 with their villages. Now, just a quick note on these cities for those of you who might be kind of numerically inclined. It says there, there are 29 cities with their villages, but if you count them one by one, you're gonna count 36 cities. 
And this is precisely one of those places that Bible critics and skeptics love to think that they've caught God in some kind of a mistake or that we Christians are so stupid that we can't count, right? Now, if they would just keep reading, they would find out that in just a few more chapters, by the time we get to chapter 19, what we're going to see is that Judah gives to Simeon seven separate cities. And of course, 36 minus 7 gives us what? 29. You don't need to go to Stanford to know that, right? It gives us the 29 cities that actually will belong to Judah. Now, anyone including the skeptic would have known that if they had just kept on reading. And so the moral of the story is just keep reading, which we ourselves are going to do right now. So we just saw the cities in the south. Now in verses 33 through 47, we're going to see the cities in what they call the lowlands. And that's the area kind of between the seacoast of the Mediterranean and heading uh, eastward toward the mountain. It says in verse 33 that in the lowland... And then you see in verse 36, there's 14 cities in their villages. Verse 41, 16 more cities with their villages. Verse 44, nine cities with their villages. And so we can start to see there were many more cities that had developed along this area. There's a total of about 45 to 50 different cities with their towns and with their villages because the soil in that part of the country was especially good and especially fertile. So now, we work our way in verses 48 through 60. Now we start to kind of move east, and we start to see the cities that are there, it says, in the mountain country. Right? Verse 48, in the mountain country. Verse 51 says that there's 11 cities. Verse 54, nine cities with their villages. Verse 57, 10 cities with their villages. Verse 59, six cities with their villages. And then in verse 60, two more cities with their villages. So now we have another almost 40 cities with their towns and with the villages that surrounded them. So we have lots of little villages and towns of cities up there in these mountainous areas for one important reason. It's because they could be very easily protected. So they would establish these cities there in this kind of mountainous terrain which would prevent enemy armies from being able to conquer them. So we've got cities in the south, we've got cities in the lowlands, we've got cities in the highlands, and finally in verses 61 to 62, we see the cities finally in the wilderness. It says in verse 62 that in the wilderness, and then in verse 62, it says there are six cities with their villages. Now remember, when you see the word wilderness in the Bible, that's a code word for kind of deserted desert. It's kind of scraggly, brushy kind of desert. So there's not too many cities that would have been springing up in that kind of area. Now, all in all, Judah inherited over 100 different cities, 122 to be exact, including the ones that they're going to go later and give to Simeon, as well as all the little villages and all the little towns that surrounded those cities. And all of these beautiful cities, they were themselves a huge part of what it was that God was giving to them. They were a part of his blessing for them. It wasn't just about this barren land. So all of the crazy names of these cities in these crazy lists 
each and every one of them was so very important to them because of what it would have provided them in terms of this wonderful, ready-made foundation as they were starting out there in the land. And it would have been such a powerful testimony to God's faithfulness, a testimony to the fact that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was right there in their midst and that he was faithfully performing the promises that he had made. Remember, we've, we've looked at the scripture before. Remember that Moses had said to the children of Israel, he said, so it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, to give you large and beautiful cities, which you did not build, houses full of all good things, which you did not fill, hewn out wells, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, when you've eaten and are full, beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all of these cities, throughout all of the land, they were move in ready, fully furnished, right? Except, of course, for the fact that there were still pagan people who were living in those cities. There were these pagan people who needed to be driven out and dispossessed of their cities, part of God's righteous judgment for the centuries and centuries of wickedness and sin that they refused to repent of. So God was using his own people as judgment against these people. The cities were there for the taking by God's people. They had the promise of God. They also had this promise, remember, that he was gonna go before them and that he was going to drive the people out for them. He says, them I will drive out from before the children of Israel. And from looking at this list of 102 cities, it seems like God's people were pretty successful until we get to our very last verse, where unfortunately we see the failure of Judah. Because it says in verse 63 that as for the Jebusites the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So, of course, the day of the writing of the book of Joshua. So, over a hundred different cities that Judah seems to have occupied with little or no difficulty with the significant exception of Jerusalem where we're told that Judah could not drive out the Jebusites. Now, I think that's such an interesting statement, especially in light of the promise that God had given them to go before them. And he said he was going to be the one to empower them, and he was going to be the one to equip them. So, was it that they could not do it, or was it that they would not do it? Right? They could not drive them, or they would not drive them out, or maybe they could not because they would not. And sometimes I think that's precisely our problem. We say to God, I can't do this. And God says to us, you can't do it or you won't do it. And God says, you know, I said you'd be able to do it. I said you'd be with you. I'd be with you as you did it. God says, I've given you the land. I've given you the cities. I've given you the promise and I've given you the power. 
they were all clearly called by God to drive these people out, but instead of fully obeying him, they simply decided somewhere along the line, they decided this just isn't worth it. This just isn't worth the effort. This is just too hard. And so at some point, the, the tribe of Judah made this decision that we're just going to learn to live with them there. We're just going to settle for our enemy living right there and keeping us from enjoying and keeping us from fully possessing everything that the Lord has tried to give to us. And of course, the parallel in terms of our New Testament walk as children of, of, of the Lord is that temptation that we can have to make a decision at some point to simply learn to live with those things in our lives that we know are keeping us from really entering into that victorious Christian life that Jesus has provided to us. Now, Jerusalem was a city which would have been very hard to conquer. Again, it was a city that was actually set on a series of hills. And so it was a city that was very easy for the Jebusites to defend. And yet, we have 85-year-old Caleb who had somehow managed to drive out all the enemies, all of the giant Anakim kind of enemies, all of those giant warrior enemies from their hilltop, high-walled, fortified fortress city of Kirjath Arba. And the fact that Caleb was able to do it is simply confirmation for us that God gives the ability to us to accomplish his commands for us. So if they were unable to fully do it, they were unable to fully do it because they simply weren't drawing on God's resources the way that they could or the way that they should have been drawing on them. Remember, God has promised us, Peter says, that he's given us his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. So we have from the Holy Spirit everything that's necessary. We have all of the power that's necessary. We have all of the living water that's necessary, both the upper springs and the lower springs. We have all of that that's flowing into this land, that's feeding our land. We have everything that's necessary to live this life of godliness and to live this life that God has called us to. But so often we simply settle for less than God's best for us, don't we? We just let those Jebusites stay there in Jerusalem. And when we do that, they crowd us out of just settling down into that holy city, right? And we just leave entire cities in the hands of the Canaanites, sometimes for 400 years, because it would be 400 years from this point until Jerusalem would finally be conquered and the enemy would be fully driven out by King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, and so in a sense... Judah's failure here, it certainly wasn't caused by God, but we see it in a beautiful way redeemed by God because this in and of itself presents us with another beautiful picture for us 
on the work that Jesus does in us. King David, of course, is a beautiful picture of Jesus. Jerusalem in the Bible very often kind of represents the heart of all of the land that God had given to his chosen people. We know from David's story in the pages of 2 Samuel that prior to actually taking Jerusalem, before he was even crowned as king, David waited in Hebron for nearly seven years. He waited there in Hebron until the whole land, until the northern kingdom and the, the south recognized him as king and crowned him as the king over the whole nation. And then what we see by the time we get to chapter 5, the very first thing that he does as the newly crowned king, right there in the very same chapter, just a couple of verses later, is to ride in and to capture Jerusalem and to take it out of the control of the enemy. David took the heart of the country out of the hands of the Canaanites. And it's such a perfect picture of the fact that in the life of every person, every person on this planet, that the heart can never be taken until the right king, until the rightful king is finally placed upon the throne. That's the victory of Jesus, in spite of the failure of Judah. And along those very same lines, you know, as an application for those of us who are already believers, the taking of Jerusalem from the control of the Jebusites is a great, great encouragement that King Jesus can conquer even the oldest strongholds. He can conquer even the last strongholds when he finally becomes the recognized king over our lives. All of that territory that should have been given rightly over to him years and years ago are now conquered. So can I just encourage you as we close in the name of Jesus that there is no stronghold left even this morning in your life. There is no enemy fortress that is still standing but that the power of the blood of Jesus Christ can't bring that down. The walls of that broken relationship are not high enough and the defenses of that enemy force aren't strong enough and that struggle of yours isn't deep enough but that the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit can't go higher than that or can't go deeper than that or can't go further than that and bring complete healing and bring wholeness and bring restoration and bring life. And that's the victory of Jesus. It's the victory of Jesus here for us on this Mother's Day morning and every morning. And I think that's enough for this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, uh, Lord, that you can speak to us even in the midst of a chapter of lists like this one. And so um, we pray, Lord, that you would help to make these truths real to each one of us in our hearts, Lord, that you'd continue to speak these things to us as we go from here, Lord. We do pray a special blessing on all of the moms, Lord, and, and pray that their day is, uh, is a great encouragement to them. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Let's stand up.
and let's uh, worship the Lord together.